The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today, as we approach 9-11, another anniversary of it, um, it is very upsetting to all of us uh, that the world does not seem to be any wiser. Instead of people having learned that um, this is not the direction we should be going in, there is violence erupting on all the co- continents of the world. I mean, it seems to be getting worse and worse. Um, it's hard to keep up with all the conflicts that there are in all the different countries, in fact. Um, you know, it's not like, it's not like in the past at times it would be, you know, a problem in one area or a problem in another area, but now it's, uh, it's, it's violence popping out all over and, um, it's not, it's very sad and it's very scary and, um, we need to figure out what to do about it because we are definitely going in the absolutely wrong direction. So, um, on this occasion, um, today's show is called The Race to Save Our Century, which happens to be the name of the title of a new book, um, of which my guest is a co-author. The book is called The Race to Save Our Century, Five Core Principles to Promote Peace, Freedom, and the Culture of Life. My guest is John Ziermack, and um, we are... I'm looking forward, John, to hearing um, what you and your co-author um, have have come up with, because clearly um, what we're doing ain't working. <laughs> so welcome to the show. Thanks, Carol. Now, before we get into um, what you talk about in the book, uh, exposing the evil ideologies and coming up with, from that, five principles that we need to uh, work towards. Um, before we get into that, though, we were just talking before we started, and you mentioned that you were in New York on 9-11. So tell us how that was. Well, it was really strange. I'll never forget. I, I used to listen to BBC News at night to get to sleep, and I remember hearing about the killing of this Afghan leader of the Northern Alliance by, by this group called Al-Qaeda. And it's strange. Normally, I wouldn't have remembered that, but, you know, as events turned out, that was the prelude to the attacks, which happened five or six hours later. Hmm. Um, and, and if they hadn't actually killed that man, they might not have, you know, had the nerve to do the rest of the attacks because they needed their safe base in Afghanistan. And I remember hearing the radio news at 8, and, it, and I, I work at home, so I was actually sleeping in, and I, I heard that a plane had hit the World Trade Center, and 
it was so it was eight o'clock in the morning, and it didn't occur to me that there'd be people in the building. I didn't really think through that people in the finance industry would already be there. So mm-hmm. I thought, oh, well, how sad that for the people on the airplane. Thank God the building was empty. But of course, we know it wasn't. We, you know, and then I went out to walk um, walk my dog. Then I heard the second tower had been hit, and that's when we knew it was on purpose. And by the time I walked my dogs over to Starbucks, where everybody was gathering, it was almost like the community center was Starbucks. We heard that uh, that something hit the Pentagon, and, and it really seemed like it was a, a foreign invasion. We didn't think, no, it was the Chinese or the Russians. It did not occur to us to think, you know, this is 12 Arab guys who were able to walk through airport security in Boston with box cutters. That would never have occurred to us. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know... We knew there were fanat, you know. You know there are fanatical people in the world who whose empty lives they've decided to fill up with a fierce ideology that replaces kind of their human identity and gives them a kind of godlike identity in their own mind. But in fact, they're they're acting like robots or animals, but they feel like gods. And uh, those kind of we learned a lot more about that ideology in subsequent days. But the, the, the strangest part that resonates with me was it didn't. It, it really came home what a crisis it was when they closed Starbucks. I don't know why, but that that took away our sense of normalcy, and suddenly I knew we were at war. Uh huh. And I had friends who saw you know were working on Wall Street, and they saw people jumping out of the towers and landed near them. Um, I had a friend who, had a, a, who was supposed to have a meeting at Windows of the World at 8 o'clock that morning, but thank God he was chronically late, and by the time he got there, huh. the tower was burning. And one of my good friends, Father George Rutler, was hearing confessions and, and ministering to the wounded in the base of World Trade Center 1, hmm. um, and he was called out to give last rites to a firefighter on the curb. So he ran outside and was doing that, otherwise he would have been crushed under the tower. Oh, wow. I know there are just um, there are stories that that are still chilling that still make one's hair stand on end, uh-huh. uh, and yet and here it is, thirteen years later, right? Um, yeah. And 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 you know it's it, what's also sad is that here even when when we did figure out what it was, um, and you know the whole thing was oh we getting Osama bin Laden. And now, look, it's 13 years later, and there's no Osama bin Laden, but now we have a worse uh, enemy, or so it seems. Yeah, we do, because it actually can, well, I guess bin Laden didn't, did not control Afghanistan, but, but ISIS seems to be controlling large swathes of Iraq. You wonder what we fought for. All those men died and all that money to create democracy in Iraq. Well, you know... I, I wonder whether some countries are ready for democracy. If the majority of people uh, believe in a, a religious ideology that's intolerant, maybe you don't want a democratic government there because they're going to vote for intolerance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. People well, forget Hitler, Hitler won a democratic election. Hmm. That's how he came to power. Hmm. Well, um, let's... Okay, so do you think that was the beginnings... Uh, I want to get to what, you know, you're, there's obviously a lot of passion. This book has been clearly incredibly researched, and there's obviously a lot of passion in it. And do you, so do you think 9-11 was the beginning of the seeds of that passion? Just, yeah, I th- to some degree it was. But, but I, you know, 9-11 was kind of a, 
it, it sort of set fire to, to tinder, the, to fuel that had already been there. Uh-huh. Because, I mean, it, w- the whole point of the book is to try to trace all the evils of the 20th century to their source. Because if you think about it, it if you were to go to, back like before July 28th, 1914, which was the beginning of World War One, everyone thought that the West was in for a century of peace, prosperity, mutual coexistence, increasing religious tolerance, increasing democracy, ever better technology. People, you did not need a passport to go from England to China in 1914. Mm. They would just take you at your word. Um, There was religious tolerance. If you were to look at the ethnic map of Eastern Europe in 1914, there were Jews, Muslims, Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, living side by side, had been living side by side for hundreds of years. People speaking different languages, living in the same village. Um, There were creaky old governments, but there were never, the governments never persecuted people based on their race or their religion. There were occasional riots, but you you did not have government-organized genocide. That would have been unimaginable to everyone in 1914. Um, you did not have any totalitarian governments in 1914. The worst one was the Tsar. But even in Tsarist Russia, there was a lot more freedom than there would ever be under the communists. So I, I jo- people could not have imagined how bad the world would get, how quickly. And it was eerily to me like September 10th, 2001 in New York. You can't imagine how fragile the peace and order and mutual coexistence are until some fanatic throws down the torch. And then you see, wait, there was all this combustible fuel. Uh-huh. In fact, things were not as orderly as we thought. So Jason Jones, who's a, a filmmaker and human rights activist, and I decided to investigate what were the roots of World War One, and then of, a, of communism and then fascism and Nazism and, and the other great evils of the 20th century. Because, it, again, go back to August, uh, July 1914. If you had told someone that 188 million civilians would be killed by their governments, not as part of war, intentionally killed by their governments, 188 million people, civilians, were murdered by their governments between 1914 and 2014. That, that's a, a hmm. conservative estimate. Uh, that comes from the book Death by Government by scholar R.J. Rummel. He's hmm. a genocide, genocide specialist, and uh, his book Death by Government chronicles that the, the most realistic probable estimate, 188 million people killed intentionally by their government between the Holocaust, the Ukrainian famine, Mao Zedong's political revolutions and slaughters. That's a staggering figure. Yeah. And, and it's, the 20th century was supposed to be you know, a hopeful time. We were eradicating disease. Women were getting the vote. Democracy was spreading around the world. So we wanted to, set, to see what were the roots of all this hatred and destruction are the ideas that gave root, gave birth to all this chaos. Have those ideas all been eradicated from the world so we're safe now? Or have they taken different form and have they gone underground and are they waiting to emerge again at the next crisis? Wow. <laughs> um, 
you know, that's it's interesting when you put it in that perspective that it's true that that I mean, I think I don't know. Do, do you would would you agree that things uh, seem worse now? I mean, even with those sort of staggering figures, it does still seem worse. It does still seem that that things have, like t- what I was talking about at the beginning that all over the world at the same time right now there's there are all these explosions violent explosions well, well I, I feel like the- we're lurching we're yeah. lurching into t- 1914 all over again uh-huh I mean we, we've had a good 20 I mean since 1989 uh, I would trace things back to 1989 till a couple of years ago you you could afford to be fairly optimistic I, I'll never forget you know, growing up during the Cold War, I'll be 50 this year, I was certain of how I would die. I would die in a nuclear Wait, war. Wait, let's, let's, we need to take a break, and that would be a good spot to do it. Okay. Um, well, that's a very, yes, that's very all very interesting. Let me, um, let me uh, have to take a break right now. Um, my guest is Dr., he, it's Dr. John Zermierak. Um, he is, a doctor of literature and writing. He was a professor uh, at Thomas More College. He's also an editor for Crossword, Crossroad Books and, um, and obviously a political commentator and columnist and so on, as well as the author of the book that we're talking about, The Race to Save Our Century, Five Core Principles to Promote Peace, Freedom, and the Culture of Life. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The experts call toll free right now 1 866 472 5787 and ask our all star team to answer your question. That's 1 866 472 5787. Thank you for calling voiceamerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Dr. John Zmirak. Zmirak. Um, and he is the co-author of a new book called The Race to Save Our Century. 
So before the break, you were talking about how you used to think you were going to die. <laughs> yeah, growing up in the Cold War, and especially in New York City, which had to be target number two on the Russian missile list right after Washington, D.C., um, and seeing documentaries about what nuclear war would be like and footage of Hiroshima, and just knowing how aggressive the Russians were, especially in the 1970s and 80s, um, I, I thought there were two choices. If either we would end up surrendering to communism or we would fight it and I would be one of the first to die in a nuclear war. I would have dreams about it. You're not supposed to be able to die in a dream. Well, I did. I saw the blast wave hit my body and all the flesh get melted off and my soul thankfully rise up to heaven. I was kind of disappointed when I woke up and there I was just with my parents. Um, but I'm... I was sure I would not have children or certainly grandchildren. It would all, you know, the whole planet would be a smoking ruin. And in 1989, and then 91, not really 91, when, 90 when the Soviet Union collapsed, I felt like an enormous weight was taken off my back that I'd never even realized was there because I'd always live with it. I thought, wow, I might not die in a nuclear mm-hmm, war. Mm-hmm. And I think the... I think much of the world felt an enormous, we breathed an enormous sigh of relief. Do you remember they talked about the peace dividend? I always wonder what happened to the peace dividend, (laughs) all this money we would have that we wouldn't have to spend on defense. Mm, But um, I think think we botched the peace to some degree. um, And and not everyone will agree with me, but I think we were foolish to expand NATO as far as we did. And I think we ended up helping to create the kind of bitter nationalistic, dictator that that is Vladimir Putin and now we we NATO is right up against his borders and we have a very dangerous confrontation with with Russia and yeah. we have a rising China that is having conflict with Japan and Japan which doesn't want to defend itself but it wants to be aggressive and nationalistic um, there are any number of flashpoints for large scale yes. conventional war yes I think that's that I, I you know I, I I think that's part of the problem too that um, in the past, you know, there would be wars here and there or skirmishes here and there, but there wasn't as much of a chance for them to erupt into sort of a more global, I mean, yes, of course, World War One and Two, but I mean, you know, now there, as you mentioned, all these different flashpoints, which any one of them could erupt into a whole world war. Um, and there are so many of them. And I think the fact that, that the weapons are more destructive also um, leads to that feeling of, you know, it being so much worse than it was. I mean, yes, World War One and Two, but they, that was over there in Europe. Right. This is the first war. That, that I mean, this would be the first time that, apart from Hawaii, that anyone could strike the American homeland with serious weapons. Um, that had that had not happened since 1812. 1812 to 1940, 1941, there was never a real geographical attack on the United States per se. But uh, now, you know, in 15 minutes, Russian missiles could just obliterate most of our cities and we could do the same to them. Mm. So in the book, we tried to examine how modern, progressive, scientific, technological Western man reverted to a kind of barbarism that would never have been accepted in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, you didn't burn entire cities with everyone in them, generally. It happened occasionally, but it was not the standard practice. uh, People weren't using poison in war in the Middle Ages, but we we used 
pesticides. The you know, Germans and English were using pesticides to kill each other in World War I. Mm-hmm. Um, so we tried to examine what were the moral problems, what were the spiritual deficits, what were the bad poisonous ideas in the backs of people's heads in 1914 that came out and blossomed into the evil yes. that we saw in 1933 and 1941. And you and, call and them the, the five ideologies of evil. So tell us about that. Right. Well, the first one we look at is racism and nationalism. Now, nationalism is different from patriotism. Patriotism is where you love your country because it's yours, and you love what's unique about it, and you want to protect it and defend it. It's kind of like loving your own parents. Nationalism is where you think your country is intrinsically better than everyone else's and has the right to lord it over them, impose its will on them, exploit them. It's kind of like insisting that your parents are the best parents on earth, and in fact, you're going to take these old people's houses and give them to your parents because your parents deserve it. Mm. So... Uh, patriotism is is the virtue, and nationalism is the distorted, horrible exaggeration of it. So you had patriotic Germans fought in World War One uh, for the Kaiser, but they didn't massacre civilians generally. But the Germans who fought in World War Two were nationalists, and, and nationalism led them to dehumanize and and destroy other civilians of other nations. So you you can see the moral. Regress. We, uh-huh. we went from, you know, we, we declined in civilization. We, we went back hundreds and hundreds of years in just 20 years. So racism and nationalism, which are in a sense, you might call them group narcissism. Hmm. Uh, narcissism, you know, think, think of a pathological narcissist. He really only thinks of himself as being fully human. And other people are almost like ghosts or optical illusions. They're not, he really doesn't feel empathy with them because he doesn't really believe that they're real in the same sense he is. Mm-hmm. Nationalism and racism are examples of that kind of psychopathology rationalized and, and justified mm-hmm. by works of literature and art and textbooks and propaganda and uh, organized folk marches, and where did that come from? Well, that had deep roots in the 19th century. In the 19th century, as countries were coming together, as as Germany was unified for the first time in hundreds of years, as Italy was unified for the first time since the Roman Empire, um, the passionate movements to unify these countries uh, became religions of their own. You had, uh, in, in Italy, they had catechisms modeled on the Catholic catechism, but the catechism was all about Italy, hmm. the nation of Italy, and how hmm. it was sacred, and it was unique, and you should be willing to die and kill for Italy, um, and the same thing even more in Germany, and in Germany, you had a, mi- a weird mixture of nationalism and romanticism, which you see uh, especially in like Wagner's operas, uh-huh. where... You have, Wagner's operas are almost a replacement for the Christian liturgy. There are religious ceremonies that deify the ethnic community of the Germans and demonize outsiders. And in, in, in Wagner was himself personally quite anti-Semitic. And scholars have said that the figures of the, of the money-grubbing dwarves who cause all the trouble in his operas were his his figure for the Jews. Mm. Mm. Certainly Hitler 
derived much of his ideology from the writings of Richard Wagner. Hmm. Um, and now, Wagner never anticipated genocide, but he certainly helped lay the groundwork for uh-huh. it. Um, so when you have these intoxicating pseudo-religions of, uh, in, in the form of racism and nationalism, they, they, for, they serve a purpose. They give people a sense of place in the world. They give people a sense of identity. And especially in the late 19th century, when people were flooding from their small villages where their family had lived for hundreds of years and they knew everyone, they were flooding into these big anonymous cities in England and Germany and France where they didn't know anyone. They, they stopped going to church. They, they had no connection with anyone there were only really two directions where they could find some kind of sense of community and of connection. When one of those was in nationalism and uh-huh. in, in thinking, I'm, I may be alone here in Paris working in a factory, but I'm French uh-huh. and, and I'm, I'm equal with every other Frenchman of pure blood. And we are one, uh, a nobleman, a peasant, a worker, we're all equal because we're equally French. We participate mm. in this sacred community of blood, and we unify, we, we identify together against the outsider, against the German, against the Jews living in our midst. Anti-Semitism was much worse in France in the 19th century than it was in Germany. Really, you would have expected a Holocaust in France before Germany. It's one of the terrible ironies of history. Um, but this happened in country after country. So you, you had a sense of solidarity, artificial, made-up solidarity with everyone who, shared, who spoke the same language and uh-huh. belonged to the same imaginary race community. Uh-huh. And what about the, the next one is militarism and total war? Right. Well, if you have a nation of millions of people who have reformulated their identity to be based on identification with everyone else of the nation. And it's like one big family and everyone else is the enemy, the other, the outsider. You have created the groundwork for a much more destructive kind of war. Wars in the, you know, in the 18th century, say, uh, they were fought by kings who were fighting, oh, I want this city or I want control of this river. They would hire professional armies, and the armies would fight against other armies, but they generally did not wage war against the civilian population. With the French Revolution, however, the, French, the revolutionaries were declared, had declared war on the rest of Europe and were intent on imposing their revolutionary ideals on other countries, whether or not they wanted it. They instituted military conscription for the first time. For the first time in hundreds of years, Ordinary people could be grabbed off the street, given a rifle, trained, and turned into soldiers. So suddenly the entire nation were soldiers or potential soldiers. Well, if that's true, if, if everyone in a country is part of the war effort, then everyone in an enemy country is part of the war effort, uh-huh. and it's legitimate to target them because every woman is the, fa- the mother of future soldiers. Every old man might be working in a war factory. Suddenly the difference between innocent civilians Mm. and soldiers who are legitimate targets, that difference disappears. And everyone in the foreign country is a legitimate target. Uh That was part of it. Part of it. And another part of it was 
World War One was so futile and so grinding, and you had you know millions of men dying to move the, the front lines back and forth a few hundred feet. That at the end of the war, the general generals in many in all the different nations that had fought. The, tried to re-examine how do we fight? We can't have this happen again. We can't have our army subjected to this level of destruction. At the same time, aircraft were being developed. Well, these two things came together, and they and various generals in different countries came up with the idea of strategic bombing. That if you bomb your enemy cities, his people will be demoralized and will overthrow the government and bring about peace. Hmm. Hmm. So in order to save the lives of your soldiers, you need to kill enemy civilians. And that became a, a military doctrine in Italy, in Germany, in France, to a lesser degree in England. And we see what happened during the war. It's very interesting to trace this historically um, and see, you know, see that these things didn't come from nowhere, which is, of course, what, this, what your book is all about, um, so that we can understand it and do something about it and change the course of history. The book is called The Race to Save Our Century, Five Core Principles to Promote Peace, Freedom, and the Culture of Life. My guest is John Zmirak. And you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. We have to take another break. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, and trying to honor, in a sense, the memory uh, of those who died in 9-11, so, such that it won't be in vain. We're coming up to that now. And as we've been talking about, the world is in worse shape. It didn't learn a thing. Um, we're talking today about The Race to Save Our Century, which is the name of a new book by my guest, John Zmirak. And uh, we, we were in the midst of uh, the five etiologies of evil, so there are three more to go, and then we'll get into the principles that we can all learn from these, uh, from what not to do. So go ahead. You t- you told right, me in well- collectivism. 
Right. So I said there were two two options available to a worker who was isolated and cut off from his from his family and his village. He could take refuge in nationalism and think of himself first and foremost as a German or a Frenchman. Or what was offered in the 19th and 20th centuries was he could think of himself as a member of the proletariat of the international working class being exploited by the middle class, by the bourgeoisie, needed to unify across national lines and create an international world revolution that would destroy the capitalist system, destroy private property, destroy religion, centralize all ownership of wealth and the means of production in the hands of the Communist Party and the government, and that once this was done, and once... Absolute power had been achieved by the working class in, in country after country. A utopia on earth, a heaven on earth, a kind of messianic age would dawn. That was Mar- Karl Marx's promise, that once you got rid of private property and religion and the family, those were his three big enemies, private property, the religion, and, religion and the family, all the sources of conflict and exploitation and cruelty between human beings would disappear and we would live in a, a world of harmony, abundance, prosperity. And in fact, you would not even have to have a specific job. He thought that when you got rid of private property, there would be so much wealth that you could just be a dilettante. Like you, a factory, you could be a factory worker in the morning. You could fish in the afternoon and be a poet at night. He actually said that in some of his early writings. So this dream, this utopia that was created in the socialist movement was extremely attractive to people working 14 hour days, seven days a week with, you know, no health insurance and no protection against industrial accidents. People really were being exploited. There was a very difficult early period of industrialization. The first factories were horrible places and children worked in them and women were pregnant. Women worked in looms and got diseases. There were genuine abuses that needed to be addressed. But the socialist movements, especially the Marxist movements, saw these things not as abuses to be corrected, but as fuel to add the fi- to the fire to actually make people angry. In fact, they even opposed fixing the abuses because they were worried that would keep the workers happy huh. and they wanted the workers to be angry. Hmm. So they, they, there's an and old Marxist that going saying. going on today, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's an old Marxist saying, the worse things are, the better it is. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, yeah, because they want to bring on the revolution. That's what it describes what's going on today. Okay, let's hear about yeah. radi- radical individualism. Now, this okay. one I think I'm going to disagree with you on, but go okay. ahead. Because I love Ayn Rand. Go ahead. Well, the opposite of radical collectivism is radical individualism, where you believe that you have you owe nothing to anyone at all. Not, not, and I'm not talking about the government. You believe that just morally, you you don't owe anything to anyone. That you created yourself, and that you are responsible only for yourself, and that you are the you set your own moral standards for absolutely everything. Um, this is an understandable reaction against the evils of collectivism, and I've read most of Ayn Rand's work, and I, I understand how being a victim of communism and also of anti-Semitism, she had a strong and largely justified reaction against collectivism. But I think when applied to actual life, individualism just isn't true. We don't create ourselves. Our parents create us. Our society gives us a lot of 
privileges that other societies don't. For instance, um, would you rather, do you think you would have turned out the same instead of growing up in America if you had grown up on an Aborigine reservation in Australia or in a communist dictatorship in Africa? Uh, obvi- I think it's obvious that the kind of society you live in helps shape who you are as a person, which is why we owe certain things to, the, to our country. Patriotism. It's why we might be called to serve in the military. It's why it's appropriate to pay some level of taxes to yes, support well, I mean, a public uh, order. Uh, yes, I, I guess the way you describe it, I, couldn't, I don't agree 100% with that. I mean, I don't agree that it's just, that one should just totally think about oneself. On the other hand... Um, on the other hand, you know, especially the way things are going these days, um, you know, the idea of someone being self-made and, and deserving to um, enjoy the fruits of their labors, you know, rather than having to be in a more socialistic society, um, I mean, I think that, that that gets to be more and more valid with what's happening. Well, Again, the alternatives are uh, the alternative is not socialism and radical individualism. I think what we're saying is you need to think of yourself as part of a family mm-hmm. and think of your primary obligations to your family and to your local community, not to some big government in Washington, not to the UN, but also not exclusively to yourself. The mm-hmm. more natural mm-hmm. human thing is to think in terms of your family and your local community. That was the spirit of the founding fathers. They, they yeah. were not radical individualists. They would yeah. not have recognized Ayn Rand. So what we're trying to do is help people resist socialism, resist statism and collectivism, but without going into such a caricatured extreme that they end up just being discredited and they end up losing arguments. We, and it, really, the alternative is not radical selfishness and collectivism. Mm-hmm. The alternative is love of family, love of, of your local community, love of country where it's appropriate. That is a re- really moderate and sane and human mm-hmm. middle ground between these radical extremes. Yes, and yes. that's what we're promoting. And, and so, what, how are you saying that, that self-worshipping heroes make, made way for the culture of death? What do you mean by the culture of death? Well, the culture of death is a culture where for instance, do you know that 90% of unborn children who are found to have Down syndrome are just routinely aborted? There's something wrong with that. That's eugenics. I mean, I, I, it's kind of shocking to us that infants who are imperfect will be destroyed. And, and that, that comes from the notion that you have an absolute right to control your own destiny without any concern for other people. In, in India... A large, a large percentage of female unborn babies are aborted because the parents want a boy. Yes, yes, and in China, so, of course. In China. So what we're talking, radical individualism would say that that's nobody's business. Mm-hmm. You, nobody, can, nobody should complain about that. If we don't want to bear a retarded child, even to put him up for adoption, it's up to us what we do. And we think that that is too extreme of you. And it, under, it undermines the sanctity of life, which is one of the most fundamental things oh, oh. in avoiding these, these evils. Okay. And last but not least in amongst the five ideologies of evil is utilitarian hedonism. Right. And, and that's where, okay, that is a philosophy which says there is no meaning in life. There is no higher purpose. 
The only purpose in life is to feel good most of the time, is to have a relatively good time and suffer as little as possible. Suffering is the only evil. Suffering has no meaning. Self-sacrifice has no value. We simply should live from moment to moment and try to feel as happy as we can. And we should try not to, you know, make other people unhappy either. Try not to harsh, harsh their, their buzz. But there is no higher purpose or value in suffering. And there is no value in self-sacrifice. That, I think, that sort of depressing slacker mentality, that's kind of the default position, especially of millennials. It's what they've been taught. It's what the culture has told them. And what, we, what, we, what you see that leading to is euthanasia. Um, in, in, in Belgium now, they have euthanasia for children against their will. Hmm. If the parents think that a child's life is, is going really badly and he's really unhappy, they can have him euthanized in Belgium. And we just saw this story of this this woman who her, her she had a handicapped son and she thought she thought he would be going to the father for custody and that he would be abused, so she killed him. And she's making that her tr- her defense at trial. Hmm. So the, the it, it's kind of subhumanism we call it. It's where it treats people as less than people. I mean, I understand with animals. If an animal is going to suffer, you put it to sleep because there is no meaning in a human in an animal suffering. But I don't think we, we should routinely say, oh, you're old, you have Alzheimer's, I think your time is done, let's just you know, give you an overdose of pills. Um, to me, that fundamentally undermines our respect for our fellow human beings. Human beings are, are something more than just a bundle of pleasure and pain. They're, they're something more than just a good time or a bad time. Uh-huh. Uh, at, so that, that we see as that's the future threat. So, okay, so you're saying um, to try to, you know, sort of uh, wrap this part up, you're saying that um, these five ideologies are essentially rampant in the world, and this is what is causing the 21st century to be going on this downward trajectory. Yeah, absolutely. I classify radical Islam as a form of racist nationalism. Uh-huh. So... And if you do that, the pieces all fall into place. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, well, when we come back, we'll hear about the five principles that we should be, you know, learning from all of these things and we, in terms of ways to do things better. So, um, again, this is all very, very important stuff. Again, my guest is Dr. John Zmirak. Uh, his book is called... The race to save our century, and we're racing to <laughs> racing to have you come back to the next segment. Now you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. 
She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. How are we supposed to save our century in an hour? (laughs) That is the uh, frustration that I'm feeling with my guest, Dr. John Zmirak, uh, again, his book is called The Race to Save Our Century. And um, we're talk- so we were just talking about the five ideologies of evil that are running rampant um, across the world. And what are the five principles that we are supposed to be distilling from that to help us go in a more positive direction? Okay, well, I think these are principles we should hold in our hearts when we make all decisions, political, personal all decisions. And we think if if people held on to these five principles, they would make better decisions and some of these ideologies of evil would not be so powerful or rise to haunt us. The first one is the sanctity of the human person. The idea that the human being, you should treat him as an image of God. That there's something sacred about every single human being. You can never just treat somebody just as a means to an end. People are not objects. Uh, some sense of human sacredness, which is obviously one of the great things that was lost in the 20th century. That's how we got 188 million murdered people. Um, The second core principle is the idea of a transcendent moral law. There is a law that is higher than the laws of nations. Just because something is legal, that doesn't make it moral. We know that from slavery. We know that from segregation. Obviously, we know it from the Nuremberg trials. But it, it's been a controversial principle, and they had a hard time trying the war criminals in Nuremberg because the things they did were legal in Germany, hmm. and they had to they had to re- have recourse to the idea that there is a higher law that, regardless of what judges say and what legislatures say, there are certain fundamental things that are right and wrong across all national boundaries. And just because people have a different culture, that doesn't mean it's okay to burn widows. It doesn't mean it's okay to you know, mutilate girls generally. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, slavery is not okay just because it's your culture. Mm-hmm. So the third core principle is the, we call it subsidiarity. It's small decentralized government. That the government is governed, the best government is that which governs least and governs closest to the people. You have a much bigger stake in what goes on in your town than you do what goes on at the UN. So you should have, most of government should be local because then people can vote on things that actually affect them. Uh, as opposed to most of your tax money going to the federal government and most of decisions being made in Washington by appointed bureaucrats. The better system would be 
most of your tax money going to your own town and most decisions being made at meetings that Mm. you could personally attend if you want to. That Mm -hmm. was the model on which America was founded and Switzerland is still run that way. Most uh, most of people's taxes in Switzerland go to their local community and the smallest amount to the federal government. Mm. We see that as the best guarantee of freedom because in decentralized societies, you can't organize a genocide. You can't organize the confiscation of everyone's uh-huh. property. Um, and in fact, we, there's a fascinating book called Countrymen uh, by Bo Lidegaard about how the Holocaust was avoided in Denmark. The local communities, which had a lot of power, simply refused to, commun- co- to cooperate with the Germans. The police wouldn't arrest Jews. The local town would not identify them. It was just grassroots resistance. Huh. That kind of thing is only possible in a society that is decentralized. Uh-huh. Whereas a, a centralized society like Stalin's Russia, they were able to impose the Ukrainian famine and kill up to 12 million people, take all the food out of Ukraine and starve the people to death. There was no local power. No one could resist. Uh-huh. Um, our fourth core principle is we call it a humane economy. It's basically a free, a free market economic system with you know certain safeguards, certain protections for workers and and factories and things like that. But basically, people should be free to dispose of their labor and their time and talent for the benefit of their own families. And we should not not see our our nation as a a common pool of wealth that the government pours wherever it thinks it is appropriate. Uh We We need to see every dollar that's taken in taxes. That's, you know, that's... That's forced labor. That is forced labor you are doing for the government. There needs to be some taxation for defense and for roads, but we need to see every dollar taken from you in taxes is a small encroachment on your liberty. And for some of us, a third or a half of our wealth is taken in taxes. That means half your time you're a slave. Yes, 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 absolutely. And the fifth... The fifth is, we call it solidarity. The idea that every human being on the face of the earth, we owe some respect to. We can't just view them as objects. So if we go to war, we have to be protective of enemy civilians as much as possible. We can't go down to the same level as our enemies. We can't employ the same kind of reasoning that Osama bin Laden did when he blew out the World Trade Center. There will always be civilian casualties in a war, but we, we, we hold ourselves to a higher standard than the terrorists. We try to protect innocent lives because it's important and also as a way of teaching a lesson to the world that our system is better because it really does respect human beings as human beings. Okay, but what about, you know, the counter-argument... Um, that it's the fact that we do have, uh, do think that way, at least more than the enemies, more than the terrorists, that is putting us at a disadvantage to the terrorists. I I think it puts us at a short-term disadvantage sometimes, but I think in the long run it makes our system and our society enormously more attractive. And it helps undermine support for the terrorists in their local populations. I, I think... The attraction of Western society, the attraction of our wealth and our freedom, ultimately are eating away at the support for radical Islam, and that's what they're afraid of. I think, actually, on some level, the terrorists are trying to make us 
more violent, more dictatorial, more regimented, so that we will be less attractive mm-hmm. to their children. Because their children look at look at America and they think that's how they want to live. They don't they don't want to live in a, a, a theocratic totalitarian society like ISIS is creating. Um, Bibi Netanyahu once made a great joke. He said we should drop DVDs of Sex in the City onto Iran, and in 30 years they won't be a problem for us. <laughs> now, Sex in the City takes things further than I would want to, but it gives you the general idea is that a good life, an attractive, happy life, is what attracts normal people. And so if we don't make it possible for the terrorists to portray us as hateful, as as not not caring about civilian lives, if we don't we, we should not fall into the caricature that they're trying to paint of us. Mm-hmm. So if we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard because it undermines enemy morale, if you well, want a tactical argument. Yes, I like that. That's, yes, um, th- that's true. Uh, of course, on the other hand, um, you know, the, with the domestic terrorists, the problem of growing of domestic terrorism, um, you know, those are people who failed at the American dream and want right. to destroy it. That's right. That's right. There are always going to be soci- those outliers. I mean, I, I read once that 4% of the population is so- are sociopaths. I'm sure they're heavily overrepresented among the terrorists. Mm-hmm. You even have sociopathic subcultures. I, I think that these terrorists probably, it's a subculture of, of high-functioning sociopaths cooperating to destroy innocent third parties. And we have to be willing and a- able to crack down on these people, infiltrate their networks, put listening devices in the radical mosques. I, I'm not talking about velvet gloves here. I'm just saying that there, there, has to be, there have to be certain moral limits we're not willing to transgress mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. we don't want to turn into our enemies. Yes. Well, all right. I want to make sure there's enough time to give out information to people as to where they can go to find out more um, about your book and your thinking and also where to buy the book. Um, of course, people know that they can buy the book at, at books at, at Amazon and Barnes & Noble, um, but you also have a website called SaveOurCentury.com, SaveOurCentury.com. And um, and also, I want uh, there, there's a wonderful, wonderful trailer uh, connected to the book. And if you go to YouTube and put in "Save Our Century," um, it will come up, and it's really worth very powerful uh, trailer. So I'd like to thank you, Dr. Johns Mirak, and for sharing all of this. Obviously, a lot of research and a lot of thought went into it. And thank goodness somebody is doing that and thinking because uh, because so much of the world is just fitting into those um, those evil ideologies, even if they don't really mean to. You know, even if they're not evil at heart, it's still so easy to fall into one or more of them. So thank Absolutely. you very much uh, thank for, you. for sharing all of this, and I wish you all the best. The book is just out this month. And um, again, the uh, whole title is The Race to Save Our Century, Five Core Principles to Promote Peace, Freedom, and the Culture of Life. So thank you so much for being on Dr. Carol's Couch, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.